Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, special co-host uh, Anuj Abral. Anuj is Justin Khan's chief of staff, which is, you must be living the dream. And then I may have buried the lead, but we're here with Justin Khan. Uh, guys, welcome to the podcast. Thank yeah, you. How are you? Justin, how would you like people to describe you? Well, I used to spend a lot of time thinking about that. Uh, I used to think, uh, one of how am I going to be remembered and thought about? And I tried to, I wanted to optimize the way people thought about me and my Wikipedia page, but I don't really care anymore. I've realized that it's all, however you think of me today, you know, you think, oh, that guy's been an entrepreneur. He's had some success. Maybe he was lucky. Maybe you think I'm really smart. It doesn't matter in 10, 20, 30, 50 years, it'll fade away and yeah. you probably won't remember me at all. So that's okay. That's just part of life. It doesn't really matter that much. <laughs> I feel like you're on some Jim Carrey, like wisdom. If you follow Jim Carrey's like a... Uh... Is Jim Carrey, has he turned from comedian to guru? <laughs> yes. Comedic guru. I'm trying to think of other analogies, but I feel like you're really on a on a wisdom kick. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot a, a lot more recently about what's really important yeah. in my life, and I think there's some probably generally applicable lessons there. But it's been a good journey for me so far. Still on it. Justin Khan, serial entrepreneur, investor, co-founder, CEO of Atrium, of which we were like lucky to be investors. Let's get back to this wisdom wisdom kick. Any foundational texts or what what is sort of the moment where you started to think a lot more about this type of stuff? Well, okay, I'll back up. So started a bunch of companies. People might know about them. Most of them failed. Justin TV. Justin TV. Exact. Exact. And then one of them that worked is called Twitch. And uh, we ended up selling that to Amazon 2014. And then I was a partner at Y Combinator where we met uh, for a couple of years investing in startups. And then more recently, about a year and a half ago, almost two years now, I started a company called Atrium, which is effectively a verticalized, full-stack, tech-enabled law firm for startups. And through the process of starting Atrium, it was a, it's been a very tumultuous rocket ship, which, you know, many startups are ups and downs. Oftentimes feels like there's more downs than ups. Uh, very stressful. I thought this time, well, surely I have mastered the game of starting startups. But there's always something new to learn. So I find it very stressful. About a year ago, I was like, oh my God, the stress is really uh, just as bad as it ever was. As much of a roller coaster as there ever was in any of the other startups. And I was looking for a way to deal with that uh, inside, you know, myself. And so I really invested in thinking about what are the ways that I can build practices Actually, that sounds a little more intentional than what it was. I was, I was desperately grasping on it. It was like I was in a, in a ocean and after a shipwreck and I was like looking for a piece of wood to hold on to any sort of practice that would enable me to add a little bit more calm into my life. And so that's kind of how I, I started thinking about this and uh, eventually built out doing a set of practices. You know, we don't need to, I've talked about them before. I, we don't need to go too deep into them, but things like meditation and being more, uh, intentional about trying to remove my attachments to outcomes. And I started doing those things regularly. And in the last six months, it's really worked for me. And, you know, it's not something necessarily that works 100% for everybody, but for me at this place in my life, I found it very important. And so that's, that's what I started doing. And I like talking about it because, you know, I've been through a lot of ups and downs, but a lot of things that Externally, people would say, man, that guy's very successful. You know, I sold a company for a billion dollars, whatever. Um, but I've got to tell you that there's nothing that's affected my baseline happiness and well-being in a lasting way. No amount of success has ever delivered that to me, even though I, you think it will, right? Yeah. You think, oh, if I just get over this next milestone, I'll feel good. But that never works. Yeah. It's never worked for me anyways. And I've never heard of it actually working in a sustainable long-term way for anyone. And this this other stuff this is kind of turning inside and working on myself has actually delivered a vast improvement to my my own baselines and that's why I'm so excited to talk about it with other people because it it is something that I feel like works. What's well, this interesting balance because you are pursuing that and everything we've been talking about at the same time you're also building this rocket ship company going from zero to how many employees Atrium? 
Well, each gym is a uh, hundred fifty people now. Zero to hundred fifteen like a year, you, two years. Why do that as well? Because if you wanted much more calm and, and peace of mind, you would you would not have a company, right? Like, what are you motivated by? Because you don't have to work anymore. You've already been successful. What what's why why build a dream? Why build a company? A build big company at all? I think that's a good question. Why do anything? Um, because everything is kind of pointless and will eventually fade away. But I think human beings are wired to want to build stuff, want to be creative, have creative outlets, build the their environment, whether it's organizationally or um, other ways. And I think that's part of kind of playing the human game is that you want, you're wired to, to do things. And that's not bad. I think that it's, uh, you just need to get perspective and remain and maintain perspective and remember that even if you are successful at building something, uh, it's not going to achieve any sort of long-term lasting outcome for you. Um, and don't be too emotionally attached to it either way. I do think that I still continue to learn things building Atrium. That's the reason I started another company. You know, it wasn't for really an economic outcome, um, because I think the marginal utility of you know, greater and greater financial rewards is pretty low for people. The reason I wanted to build Atrium was because I felt like it was a great vehicle. Startups in general are a great vehicle for your own personal growth and development to learn new skills, learn what it's like to lead uh, bigger organizations, see if you can do it, if you deserve to at all. That's not a foregone conclusion. So I felt that building a startup was a, a great way to put myself uh, into the that maximal learning situation and which it has done. And so that that's another really great reason for me to want to start a startup, I think. And another uh, piece I know you, you talked to me about a lot was mentorship and how startups were a vehicle for that too. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that building an organization, some, I mean, well, let me start from the beginning. One of the things I'm most proud of in my career is not having successful companies, but it's kind of the people who I've worked with and invested in I don't mean just invested in like economic, you know, financially, just but invested my time into and building a relationship with who have gone on to build and do really great things. And selfishly, I think there's a set of them out there who are, are thinking, you know, well, thank God for that guy, right? And they feel like they've really learned something from from me, and that's a very unique and valuable feeling, you know, of right. great sense of pride and accomplishment. And so I think. You know, another reason to, to start Atrium is really to build that type of vehicle where I feel like I can uh, mentor people who are in our organization and help them on their careers to hopefully do things, excellent things inside our company and, and then outside as well. Yeah. And did you feel that because you were playing with different, different fund ideas, you were playing with an incubator, you, zero uh, F. Did you feel that a company was the best way for you to do that? Yeah. I kind of iterated through all the ideas. So I was thinking, Oh, should I start a venture fund? But it didn't feel like very hands-on for me. You know, I had just come from from running a venture fund or being a partner at one. And then I thought about, oh, should I incubate five companies and just become the um, chairman of each one and find and someone? You did that with one, uh, Alto? Yeah, exactly. I I worked with these guys. This company called Alto. It's a full stack pharmacy, kind of like the atrium for pharmacy, and it's a company doing pretty well. We raised about seventy-five million dollars so far. It's about two hundred people. I met the co-founders, Matt, Jamie, and Vlad, because they wanted to work on a startup, and uh, they were used to work for a friend of mine, and they started working on a startup outside of, out of my house. I had this home office that I you know, just let other people use because I liked new ideas, and I liked hearing about new ideas. This was back in 2015. And so I guess it's almost been four, four years now, these guys started this company uh, that was kind of a prescription delivery company, pharmacy, and... I had helped them kind of in the initial setup phase, hiring a few of their early key employees and raising capital and really working through the strategic questions. And they've gone on to do pretty well. So I was like, oh, maybe I should just do that four more times or five times concurrently. But, you know, I felt like whenever you do that, you're never really, you don't have to solve the problems yourself. You know, you can let other, the other founders are really more on the hook for solving the day to day problems of the company. And I felt like, uh, it wouldn't be as hands-on as I, as I wanted. So ultimately I went all the way back to, you know, full circle to let's start a company. Do you see yourself as having life goals or, or sort of bucket list of accomplishments or is that incompatible with the view of, you know, being president and all that fades away eventually? I think actually, if you do invest in being president, it does fade away. Having a goal. I think the goals become more like 
a scorecard or something like that, but it doesn't really, you don't have this burning attachment between your ego and your goals. So yeah, I have goals in terms of Atrium's impact and, you know, how big of a company I think it can be. And I'm very invested in getting there actually, but I wouldn't say that it's the most important thing. Right. And for, for you personally, 20 years from now, when Atrium has been an immense success, do you say, oh, I'm just going to do that again with, some, with something else. And I, I just didn't get to be a politician. I, I don't, like, how, how do you think about? Well, I think having new experiences and trying new experiences is pretty great. A great vehicle for learning. Like I said, I really like to learn new things about new industries. And so, you know, there may be 20 years from now, if Atrium is fortunate enough to be a great success, you know, I probably would be doing, trying to do something interesting or learn about, learn about something. I'm hopefully, I think a company can be a vehicle for your continual learning, not just, you know, one, two, three years in, but 10, 15, 20 years in, you know, look at great companies like Amazon and Facebook. I should have said 30 years for 40 years from now, but yeah. Yeah. Whenever the atrium journey ends. Yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, and that, that's kind of the stage I would like to get to because I do think that uh, there's so much to learn from being able to have those kinds of opportunities. And if you ever get the chance to lead a company that's, um, you know, 10, 20 years in, that's successful and, and a large company, I think that that's a huge blessing, you know, and there's so many things you can learn from that experience. Yeah. And Anuj, what would you say is Justin's superpower having worked with him so closely and what inspired you to join him in the first place? Uh, his superpower, I think being able to think in frameworks, startups are full of ambiguous problems and be able to take that and break that down on to what to prioritize. And what led me to join him is it was a unique dual role. I was previously in management consulting and naturally you're more risk averse. And with Justin, it was an unclear role initially. This is, I wasn't 100% sure how involved I'd be with the Atrium, but you sort of just jump along for the ride. I think Mark Andreessen had this post when someone like famous comes calling, they're not going to call you back if you say no. <laughs> right. What's one or two unique frameworks that you've, you've learned from Justin? I've learned a lot of tactical things around fundraising, uh, which we might get into later, but then also even anyone's responsibilities, right? You should be able to break them down in a very like short list and always think through them. Yeah. We'll get to that in a bit. So Justin, uh, we're getting to Atrium. As you were thinking about which company to start, you've told the story of how you've been an involuntary user of the legal system for, for quite some time. When you were doing through the idea maze of what you could start, did you say, Hey, I, Justin, have built up this immense audience and goodwill and this unfair advantage around helping startups? Can I, should I build a company where startups are the customers and then evaluate different companies from there? Or what company did you almost start that, that wasn't Atrium? Well, actually, there wasn't really any company, uh, that I, you know, any other company. I think that I actually tried to figure out this is the most research I've ever done on a startup idea ever, uh, with, with Atrium. And I tried to figure out, reasons not to build it actually. And really it came from my observation, a happenstance meeting I had with a partner at a, a law firm. And I was asking her, why do you run your business in this way? You know, you serve all these technology companies, uh, the biggest technology companies in the world, but you don't really use very much tech yourself. And uh, I came up with a set of hypotheses on why the industry was broken. And ultimately I was trying to f- disprove, I t- spent the next couple of months talking to all sorts of people, potential customers, investors, other, you know, people at law firms. And I've tried to think of reasons and come up with reasons why this was not a good idea. And to be honest, I really couldn't come up with any. And I felt like it was such a big market that it was something that I really wanted to try to tackle. Plus I'd been the customer and I felt like I knew what customers really wanted. And then on, on top of that, it's like you said, I had built up this goodwill in the startup ecosystem. So that was a natural place to start with, um, you know, doing corporate transactional work for startup customers. Totally. So you, you have this unfair advantage in brand, in relationships, but how have you thought about the law, you know, sort of redesigning the law firm for, from scratch and, and how do you see the law firm evolving in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, I think there's just a lot of incentives and organizational DNA things that you can do differently. And that's the experiment of Atrium. So at a traditional law firm, you know, it's run very much uh, like a partnership. These companies are very old. They're 50 or even 100 years old. They're ships that move very slowly, that grow very slowly and do not change very often. And all the partners have their own autonomy, which can be good in a lot of ways. But uh, in some ways, you know, if you find a best practice for how to do something, 
it doesn't necessarily roll out to the rest of the partnership and to the way that everyone does things. At the same time, it's very much the case that, you know, training and mentorship, how do you train paralegals and new attorneys and how do you mentor them and hold them accountable? That's all done in a very ad hoc way on a partner by partner basis. There's no real, you know, kind of corporate DNA within law firms around training. And so I felt like there were some things that you could do if you change the culture and incentives. So on the incentive side, it's things like, um, let's move things to quote upfront pricing and fixed subscription pricing, because that's going to give us an incentive to figure out ways through technology or operational best practices to lower cost over time so that we're incentivized to improve things over time, as opposed to traditional firms, which are all on hourly billing models, where you have a incentive to not improve over time. And the other side is like, you know, creating a environment that's more like a startup, a company that's more like a startup, uh, where there's more incentive to grow the enterprise value of it over time, uh, as opposed to law firms that kind of take money off the table, as much money off the table every year as possible. So there's very little incentive for reinvestment. On the company culture side, I think there's a huge amount there. You know, law firms are run by partners and it's great if you are a partner, uh, but there's very little agency for anyone who's not a partner there. And all the partners are attorneys. So any sort of functional group, whether it's, um, you know, God forbid engineering, uh, law firms don't really have engineering, but, you know, accounts, you know, operations, any of that stuff, there's the decisions are not really made by the functional people. So it's very hard to recruit like the best in class functional people. And that's something we wanted to change. Another aspect was uh, the culture is really having a defined mission and company values. Uh, so law firms uh, do not do that really, but you know, that will sound very familiar to startup companies. So those are and some of the, the aspects, you know, really just making sure that we empower people throughout the organization, not just at the top of the organization. You know, one of the things that I remember distinctly from the research period of Atrium was talking to attorneys and these are partners, senior partners at firms. And they're like, well, people who are 30, 35, you know, do not attorneys who are, you know, like basically two, three, four, or even like five or six years in don't have enough experience yet to uh, really know what they're doing basically, or know what, how to like to do things without supervision or may ultimately make decisions about the way work is done. And I've thought back to my own experience and I thought, you know, when I was 26 years old, I was running a multi-million dollar PNL on my own startup and you, know, you just kind of learn by doing. And so providing opportunities to uh, younger people who are hungry and entrepreneurial and want to see change in this industry is something that I think we can do that most others are not doing right now. And just to zoom out, we were talking earlier that, you know, 20 years from now, you could be, you know, CEO of, of Atrium still in a, in the way that Amazon or Facebook, you know, have been going for multi-decades with the, the same CEO. What would that world look like in terms of what does Atrium look like? What's the biggest version of the, the company? Yeah. So I think that there's a, there's a huge version of the company out there. Um, I think it's going to take a long, long time to get there. We may never get there. You know, I oftentimes feel like talking about multi-decade journeys. You know, you should be so lucky. I don't, I don't, I don't know if we'll ever get there. I hope we do. And that's my goal, but, um, I, I don't know. And I don't want to be so presumptuous to say, Oh, this is what's going to happen. But I do think that if you think about enterprises out there, they consume a massive amount of legal services, hundreds of billions of dollars of legal. And what's called legal is actually kind of an agglomeration of all of these different practice areas from everything from corporate transactional to IP to litigation to all these different types of services. One of my friends I remember ran a, she was at a lawyer who just did law for airplane leases, just airplane leases, you know, for companies buying and selling air, aircraft. And there's a huge amount of tax, you know, jurisdictional things. And it's very complicated, but it's just like a very, you know, something you would think is like a small subsection, right? And so what I think Atrium can do is build, uh, combine, you know, traditionally all these different practices of law only compete on one axis, subject matter expertise. So basically, if you are a, you know, aircraft leasing lawyer or, or aircraft transaction lawyer, you're going to build your reputation over a decade or multiple decades because of your expertise. And that's how you get a reputation. And eventually your clients will refer other clients, et cetera. I think the core premise of Atrium is can you combine that subject matter expertise with a few other things? 
operational best practices, a technology platform, and a great sales and marketing go-to-market function, and build something that is uniquely positioned in the market to deliver services in a better, more efficient way that improves over time. And then can we apply that strategy and that like philosophy to all the different practices of law? And eventually, maybe all the other professional business functions that serve enterprises and, and companies. And I think is that that's the biggest the biggest version of Atrium. I really think of Atrium like I think of Amazon, which is if you think of Amazon, it's not just one company. It's really like a conglomerate of thousands of companies, all of the different retail categories, all the way to you know different software services that they sell through AWS and even Twitch and Audible and Kindle and Echo and Alexa, you know, and all these different things are run like their own small businesses, not small even, but you know, their own large businesses. And I think that Amazon, what Amazon is, is really, it's a brand. It's a set of leadership principles. It's a management philosophy, a way of serving the customer. And they apply that philosophy across all of these different businesses. And I think ultimately for Atrium to live up to its potential and be successful, uh, we have to do the same type of thing, which is really empowering leaders in our company to build these professional businesses in a different way. Does that mean that the Atrium for X will be Atrium in the same way that the Uber for X, Uber? You know, it's hard to say. I think that when I, I remember Brian Chesky from Airbnb saying that the Airbnb of boats was going to be Airbnb. Turns out there's not really any Airbnb boats, <laughs> but, um, you know, sometimes it's very easy to make ambitious conjectures in day one, which may or may not play out. So uh, I think that anyone who's trying to start the atrium of X, and there's many right now, you know, they should just go do it. I'm not necessarily going to, you know, become a tax preparer tomorrow or anything like that. What uh, What do you recommend in these atrium for X business models? What should entrepreneurs uh, have as a core part of their thesis? I think, I think there's probably a lot more nuance than people think. There's probably not like the best sweeping rules. I think oftentimes in the earlier in the cycle for, you know, X for Y, everybody is like, thinks that they can apply exactly the same things. Some one company that's being successful can to the, the others. And I think that oftentimes that proves out not to be the case, uh, because the dynamics of this, whatever marketplace or industry are, uh, often very specific to that industry. I think in general, you know, when you're starting one of these companies, you want to have uh, a pretty broad strategic understanding of how that industry works, probably some deep technical understanding of that industry from hopefully a co-founder who's been in it. And you want to have the right balance between like not indexing too much in how the experts do it in that industry, but probably not over, you know, relearn, having to relearn every industry, industry lesson. You know, oftentimes I think tech people want to come into an industry and say, well, these people don't know shit. I'm going to, I'm going to just, you know, do it from first principles entirely. You know, I appreciate the gumption and I've had a healthy dose of that, but I do think that you want to often take the best of like what's actually working. But sometimes that works, right? Just throw out everything (laughs) or beginner's mind, I guess. Not be. I think it's very important to have a beginner's mind. Definitely. But I think that it's also important to actually listen to the people in the industry and really hear beyond what they're, they're saying, right? Like there are sometimes companies don't listen enough, I think, and, and, uh, end up reinventing a lot of the same things that already, uh, already existed. Yeah. I always thought there should be sort of a, a Wikipedia of like, here, you know, here are all the companies in space that have tried it. Here's what they learned from it. Yeah. They failed. That would be a really good resource. Yeah. That would be very good build resource. Build a startup community and people who built businesses in the space should add to it. Let's say we were all running a, a fund that, and it was the Atrium for X fund. What might our thesis be or our request for startups or what would we be really excited? Like, where do we think that model will, will work well and where do we think it, it won't work well? Yeah. So I think it works best for industries that have relatively high margins and high dollar revenues. I think that's number one. You know, so I started this company called Exec and it was in the space of home joy and handy. And that was very tough to make work because the dollar revenues and margin were really low in that space. And, uh, when you have a, you know, physical workforce and that's doing the work fundamentally, it's very hard for you to make your margins work and, and support a kind of expensive technical staff and, and infrastructure if there isn't like already a lot of fat in the business. And I think it's also really important to identify a few core ways a few core things that the incumbent customers really hate about the business 
in the industry, like things that they wish that would improve where there's structural reasons why the industry is not actually solving those problems. You know, there's a lack of, there's an incentive alignment problem or a, a new entrant can come in and be counter positioned against the incumbents. I think, you know, people don't think enough of, about, about that. Yeah. Two other things I'd add. Andreessen Horowitz recently had this post about managed marketplaces and they talk a lot about the supply. You're making uh, restricted supply more accessible. So that's one. And then two, I think the Raboy thesis is pretty good here. Yeah. Uh, highly fragmented. So there's no consolidated power you're really running up against and a low NPS where people are more willing to try something out. Yeah, totally. That's great. How, how would you think about one idea of exploring is the atrium for recruiting in some, some fashion? I, I don't know which uh, segment of, of the recruiting stack to, to focus on, but what, what would you advise? Yeah. So there's, um, you know, companies are kind of eating around the edges of that. Uh, triple bite is a great example, right? Triple bite, uh, started by, uh, Harj Tagger, who's, a, uh, was a partner at Y Combinator and then two, uh, former Justin TV employees actually who went on to start a company called Social Cam. So they said technical recruiting is done in a very broken way, uh, where people look at resumes primarily, um, which are not a very good indicator of technical competence. And they felt like there should be primarily an aptitude test and then a matching program based on, you know, kind of the type of person that you need. Uh, they started really with engineers, but I actually think that process would work for other uh, skill sets and, and positions as well. And, you know, they kind of rethought the entire interview process with this, you know, beginner's mind, which I think was, was uh, pretty interesting. And if you think about the, the, the reason, one of the re ways, you know, if we go back to what I was saying, one of the ways that they're, you know, kind of doing something differently that the incumbents are, are not incentivized to do well if using contingent recruiters outside of your, your company generally one of the things they want to do is send you as many candidates as possible right and they're incentivized to waste your time as the interviewer um, with people who aren't necessarily that good of a fit because there's no cost to them to do that with triple bite they actually limit they limit the number of companies to send a candidate to because they want to create a high, one of their core metrics is creating a high matching percentage, right? Like a high interview to offer percentage. And because they feel like they can optimize the, you know, fit a match of a candidate and a company very well, it's actually becomes a negative experience if they're, you know, candidates are sent to too many companies and because there's like less acceptances at the back end, right? And so they kind of flip the, incentive structure in a, in a way. And I think that's really important. Right. Starting to see a lot of these sort of businesses that are like COO in a box, CMO in a box, accounting in a box, you know, or CFO in a box. Rather. Do you think that there will be sort of a roll up almost like a McKinsey for, for startups that does all of these things or is that atrium eventually or? Yeah. So I think that consulting is an interesting one because um, startups don't buy consulting services generally, right? They don't buy very many consulting services. So I think the McKinsey, or atrium of McKinsey would probably target enterprise customers. Um, I've heard of a few things, you know, few things. There's, I can't remember what it's called, but there's one that does verticalized, like kind of piecemeal work. Actually, there's a couple. There's one called Consus that was a YC company that was also doing like piecemeal work that consult, you know, like things like PowerPoints and stuff like that. They have it in a, in a way that it's kind of like this virtualized workforce that's, you know, freelancer workforce behind the scenes that's um, abstracted away with project managers. So I, I think that's, that's, uh, that is happening actually. Yeah. Hmm. I want to transition a little bit. One of the things you said in a recent YC talk is that there are startups that fail because of bad management and startups that succeed, but still have bad management. <laughs> that's I've said it consistently throughout my, <laughs> yeah. my time at YC. Yeah. And so what exactly separates bad managers from good managers or what are the most common misconceptions? Well, I think the problem in Silicon Valley generally, this probably happens all over the, every industry, but I see it most here because this is the industry I'm in is that you have a lot of young people who start companies, which is great. And they get something off the ground and they find product market fit and then they get capital for it, their company. And they do all those things having relatively little management experience often. And they do them and they're successful, not because of their management. Right. They're successful because they were a really good engineer or product person who invented this thing and they get to a certain stage and they get this opportunity to manage a company with a lot of people and have capital because of their, you know, finding product market fit, right? Or their core skills, like maybe it was engineering, maybe it was sales, whatever. And then 
it turns out, you know, most management is a skill that you learn by getting, you know, learning by, by doing and by getting coached and getting your 10,000 hours in. And, you know, very few people are just natural, amazing managers. And so of course these people are like not good managers, right? Because they weren't selected from a pool for being good managers, right? So it could be, that can manifest itself in many different ways from the like kind of mundane, like you aren't doing the basic things like one-on-ones or helping people develop the skills they want, or even understanding what your employees want to develop in and uh, helping them achieve their goals all the way through, you know, you're not delegating well, you're not setting goals well, because you're not used to doing those things. If you had to boil down your uh, startup, you know, crash course in management to just say five minutes, what are the most important principles or lessons that you would impart? Yeah, the number one thing is what got you here won't get you there, right? You need to learn to delegate. That's true for almost everybody. Most people become a manager because they were really strong IC. When you're really strong IC, you get a reputation for being really strong IC because you do things, whatever it takes, yourself. You're just willing to jump in there and do it yourself. Well, it turns out that's not a way to build a scalable, well-functioning team is to do everything yourself. So at a certain point, when you start managing a team, you need to start delegating and holding people accountable that in a way that's empowering, right? Not just like, uh, you know, cracking the whip or like, um, you know, just, I think it's really important to, to kind of realize that you need to take a step back and delegate and really figure out how to empower other people to do the work. That's like number one basics. Number two is just really looking up all the best practices and starting to implement those. You know, that is things like one-on-one goal setting, you know, performance reviews, all the basic stuff. I'm not the world's best manager either. I'm not an expert at, at that. You can read about it all online. There's lots of books. You know, that's probably the second thing that's important. And, you know, I, I think the third thing that's probably an important realization I would say to people is maybe this should be number zero, actually, is that just it's all about the team you build. You know, people are the most important thing. People don't change that much, especially when they're not, they don't want to. And so, you know, really finding the right people from the outset is probably the number one thing you can do to be successful as a leader of a team, whether it's, you know, a small team or a large team. And so really spending the time to invest in finding those right people and empowering them is, is incredibly important. How has that uh, evaluation criteria for you changed over time uh, with those executives that you do delegate to? Yeah. So I think uh, in terms of evaluating people, that's, that's a really good question. I think one of the things I didn't realize even through the beginning of Atrium as much was that there's a certain type of people that I like to work with and everybody's different, right? Everybody has different types of people like they like to work with. And it's not really a matter of right or wrong or who's like the right type of person to hire. It's more a matter of fit with you. And so for example, for me, the type of people I really want to work with are people who are very much like take ownership and responsibility, don't want me to help them draft the plan or whatever, but really want me to like provide my input at a very strategic level. They have a high degree of ownership. This is the opportunity to own things wholly is like a a great opportunity for them. Very low ego, kind of willing to do whatever it takes and um, they really see my input as like on the strategic level as a coach and maybe complementary skill sets, right? So some of the things that, you know, I'm good at, I can help them with things like I'm good at sales. I'm good at recruiting, basically telling a narrative. So that's something that I can, I can help with. And the things I'm willing to trade off, right, are, you know, these, you don't have to be the person who comes up with all the ideas yourself, uh, right? Like the most creative person. I th- I'm willing to trade off experience, right? Like definitely willing to take opportunity flyers on like kind of high potential young people because, you know, you can't have everything, right? Like, and so I, I think that at the outset, I did not really realize as much, like I didn't have a specific archetype of person where, that I knew I worked back best with. And, and now I've kind of identified that. Yeah. So Katuna has a company building theme. Let's talk about fundraising. And you came out the gate and raised $10 million. That's right, ten and a half million. And you could have could have bootstrapped yourself. How do you think about sort of lean startup versus fat startup? Versus what was your philosophy there? Well, in this case, my goal was really to get to the place where I was learning very fast. And one of the reasons I liked Atrium itself and these verticalized startups is because you know there's product market fit in a way, which is to say that every founder in Silicon Valley is going to pay for legal services one way or another. Legal services are something that you're going to have to use 
it's a, a tax on every corporate transaction in America of any note. And so uh, I felt like it would be relatively straightforward to start getting some customers and really doing customer development and understanding how to make things better. And I had a good picture of how to make things better already in my mind. And so as opposed to, let's say, a social app where, you know, you kind of play around with ideas and you roll it out there and see if it works and you've kind of been been there and experimented and like nine times out of 10, it doesn't work. So you're in this like small team iteration on an idea for a very long time, for an indefinite amount of time. And I wanted to not be in that right. space, right? And I wanted to be in a place where, you know, I felt like as a found, second time, third time founder, fourth time founder, whatever it is, I wanted to really take not market risk, but execution risk, right? And so that's why I kind of picked this idea. And then once we had the idea, I was like, well, I know that as opposed to most startups, you know, in this startup, it's kind of like, I know if I build it or I have a very good sense that if I build it, they will come. So I wanted to raise enough money to support a team that I felt like could build a very good experience. Is there a different kind of business where you would more recommend lean startup? Like Definitely. If you're building like a social app, for example, like whale, which if you're building whale, right, whale which is like a social video Q and a app, you know, that's a app that you just need four guys in a room to build and you know, it might work. It might not work, but you can do that on very little capital. If you're building a, you know, cash flow business. There's a lot of like these direct to consumer businesses that are generating cash flow from day one. They don't need to raise that much money. You know, don't raise the money if you don't have to, definitely. Yeah. And so talk about how you architected that seed fundraise. Cause I remember getting the call and saying, Eric, I, I want you in. It was one of the, one of the last people, but you, you I'm very thankful for your support. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Very large, very large check. And no, but you, that's not, it's, that's yeah. not the important part. Course, I think that it's yeah. great to be part of the community of yeah. startups. You know, one of the things I wanted to optimize for was having people around the table who were very helpful and uh, you've always been there for us. So I appreciate yeah. that. I, I like it's, it's great to be involved. Talk about how you architected that round. Cause you have, you have a lot of stakeholders in that round. You're very strategic about how you put that round together. And I get that part. I'm, I'm mostly interested in how you picked, how you picked your lead. And how you thought about it from yeah well i think that the lead in a way uh picked me in that you know i had this idea and i was vetting it so i was talking to a lot of investors and friends and i was like oh you know would this work we'll poke holes in it and i remember talking to nico someone i had known through yc nico bonanzas at, at general catalyst and i was telling him this is in 2017 i was telling him about the startup idea. And he, uh, we spent, you know, it was a 45 minute conversation scheduled on Saturday. He came to meet me at four barrel in the mission. Uh, but he, we ended up walking around for a couple hours talking about it. He's very excited about it. And he was like, come in for a partner meeting on Monday. So I came in, boom, they gave me a term sheet. And that was very convincing that I was like, Oh, I guess this is, this is, it really is a real thing. So I, I had talked to a few more people who I really respect in the industry, but ultimately, um, these guys kind of gave me everything I wanted and they were very excited about it. Uh, I think General Catalyst has been very interested in these verticalized full stack businesses. And so, um, that I, I wanted to fill the round with as many people as I felt like could be helpful, uh, as possible. So we raised money from 90 other, uh, investors, you know, prominent angels and CEOs and, and, uh, seed funds and also venture funds in Silicon Valley. Was strategic, somebody strategic to 10 versus five versus 15 or 20, or how did you come up to that number? 10 million was, it was basically double what I felt like I needed to build this. We had a plan and it was like, you know, spend, spend five to get to a certain level. And so it was, it was kind of like, oh, this is a good buffer. But you know, a lot of what we were doing with this early round startup was, um, in terms of fundraising, it was kind of like the ninja move. You know, you can, you can often, at YC, we'd, we'd always say you could cut your own head off. Don't try the ninja moves because you can cut your own head off. And, uh, I definitely don't necessarily recommend to most startups that they go and try to raise from 90 investors. Uh, I think it can actually be a giant pain in the ass for us. There was a reason to do it because we really wanted to be accepted into the Silicon Valley, uh, community and mind, you know, mind space. And so we felt it was important from a, uh, branding perspective. This time around. So you've written guides on how to raise a seed round, series A. Uh, we raised a series B in this past summer. What are your main learnings from doing this past round compared to previous ones? Uh, yeah. So in this, in this past round, um, with, which, which led by Andrew Chen and, uh, Mark Andreessen at Andreessen, you know, it's very similar to actually a, a series A in a lot of ways. You have to go 
but for you, the Series A was pre-data, right? Or was it was there yeah, a, it was pre-data. It was, it was a deck. Like it was a deck. Here, you know, we we had a bunch of milestones. So the first thing we did was like the pre-work. We had a bunch of milestones we wanted to hit as proof points. So in the six months leading up to our latest round, we spent a lot of time executing against those milestones, and I think we did a pretty good job of it. Those were things like product proof points and uh, you know revenue and stuff, things like that. And then uh, that was the hard work, really. And then after that, you know, we did a lot of work on how do we present this narrative, built a funnel of investors, went through the funnel, you know, did the whole process. And it was, you know, it was a normal kind of process. And luckily, you know, we found a partner who really believed in in us. And uh, Andrew was a seed investor in us. And so, you know, he believed in us since the beginning. And I've always had a tremendous amount of respect respect for for Andrews and Horowitz. And so it it was good to find a good partner there. You know, we took some of those learnings that we had from from the, our process, you know, and we've also helped. I think Atrium itself has done, it's probably 70, 80 price rounds now in the last year and a half, something like that. Um, and we've seen a lot of dynamics around how do you build a successful fundraising process. So we took some of those and we turned them into this program we call Fundraising Concierge, which really helps startups quarterback their fundraising process uh, for Series A, Series Bs. You know, I think there's, it's, it's, there is really a playbook that, you know, if you, assuming you do the pre-work to actually have a good company, uh, if you have a good company, an investable company, if you just run this playbook, you know, it's going to maximize your probability of success. And it really is a science. It's like sale, enterprise sales. I think when people outside of who have not done sales before, I think about sales, it seems more of an art, but I think if you go inside and do a deep dive into anyone who's running enterprise sales, it's actually quite a bit of a science and that's always surprising to people, I think. Yeah. Transitioning out a little bit, well, continuing the company building theme for a sec. One of the things you at Adrian has done very well is think about content, marketing, brand. One of your, your self-admitted superpowers is that you're a gifted hype man. Yeah. Uh, so what has been your philosophy of content marketing brand at Atrium? Yeah, I mean, the philosophy of content marketing and branding, it's like cribbed directly from YC's playbook, right? If you are helpful to the founder community, the entrepreneurship community, and put information out there for free that is helpful to people, then they will like you and you will build a great brand in that community. It's not rocket science. And I didn't even invent it. You know, I watched Paul run this playbook with things like um, Startup School and his essays uh, for years. And that is what I liked doing myself when I was at YC, you know, putting out content, whether it was on Snapchat or blog posts or whatever. I remember writing a guide to um, how to sell your company after we sold Twitch. I was like, someone should have this information for founders because it's a very yeah. asymmetric process, right? Corporate development teams are doing tons of deals and you as a founder might never sell your company only once in your lifetime. And so I wrote this whole guide to how you should think about selling your company and put it up on Medium or whatever. And I remember seeing... People be like, I use Justin's guide to sell my company. Yeah. And I was, you know, I was so that was such a good feeling. And you know, we didn't economically make any. You know, I didn't economically at YC make, get anything from that. But I know that we're by building goodwill in the world, people are like, oh well, I would want him as an advisor or as an investor in, you know, my next company, right? And so uh, we felt the same playbook could work at Atrium. So writing guides for how to raise your seed round, how to raise your Series A, from our own experiences you know, how to deal with uh, various legal uh, questions or issues that you might come up with. Putting that content out there, I think is um, great for building goodwill and brand in the market. Totally. You've also co-written a bunch of stuff. Uh, I wrote my money crypto tech crypto post on Atrium. Yep. Uh, so you've yeah, helped people write, write great things as well. You mentioned Snap. What did you learn from being a daily Snap? I don't even know what you described yourself. Snap star? Snap star. Snap star to the stars. Yes. What, what, what are the lessons? I think that's how you guys got in touch. That is. So <laughs> I reached out to him to snap. Yeah. Amazing. What are, what are the lessons you took from What was that experience like? Yeah. So a little context for people is basically in 2016 and then a little in 2017, I was creating a lot of Snapchat content, mostly about entrepreneurship and being a founder. And that was a really fun process for me. It was mostly like to learn about Snapchat at first. Cause I, you know, I hadn't really done anything in the social side in a while. And I was, you know, it was all the rage. I was a late adopter to it, to be honest. And so I was trying to figure it out. So I was just creating content out there and putting it, putting it out there. It was kind of a fun format, you know, these short video clips where I was just talking about whatever subjects people would ask me, you know, sometimes fundraising, sometimes like how to stay balanced while running a company and how to do management, how to basically all the, how to hire your first employees. And I just create fun, you know, short clip content about it. 
And well, one thing I learned is it's really there, you know, for these social media stars, it is a content treadmill. Like, yeah, it is. <laughs> That's a lot of work. You know, yeah. you think these people are just out there getting brand deals and enjoying their lives. You know, they are on a grind and you got to do it every day and create this content every day. Otherwise your audience starts disappearing. You know, Snapchat, unfortunately, was not the best platform for influencers because discovery is very hard. And so if you want to build yourself up, I got to a certain point, which was pretty fun. Actually, I was like getting recognized. I remember I went to I was in UAE watching Formula One, like in Abu Dhabi, and I got recognized on the street. And then that same trip, I was in Singapore, I got recognized on the street there. And so there was a point where I did get, you know, decently sized, but it stopped growing. And so I was very frustrated because I was like, how do I grow my audience? And Snapchat just like doesn't care. Um, they were not invested in, in helping people kind of grow. And so that's where an Instagram came along and kind of like clobbered them on the influencer side, because I think they cared a lot more about like the influencer feedback. But I, that was, this was like before Instagram stories. So I was, I, I didn't really, I hit a wall and then, then I gave up. I also started Atrium. I was hit a wall and I started Atrium and I was like, I have something more interesting to do now. Yeah. But you were almost going hardcore Gary Vaynerchuk. I guess so. I, I think that yeah, I guess I was almost going hardcore Gary Gary Vaynerchuk. I, I like to think I have my own style on it. Of course, of course. <laughs> I just get it. Yeah. <laughs> of yeah. course. You know, it's interesting. I, I don't know if you know this, but I, I, I see some, I've always seen some parallels in, in my career and yours. You, you yeah. started with Justin TV, live streaming. You know, a few years later, I started Rap Defend, which was live streaming rap battles. Yep. And you've put a lot of content out there and build a brand off that. I, I've started to do that. And I guess I'm wonder, I'm continuing to do that. And I guess I'm wondering, should I keep doing that or should I become more like you in that way? Or would you tell me, you know what? It worked for me, but it might not work for you. It might not be what you want. No, I think you have a great brand out there and that's very helpful, you know, to people. And uh, I would, I actually do think it depends on what you want to do, right? I think if you investors though, they underweight brand, you know, one of the things I think Andreessen did very well and so did YC uh, was really invest in branding and marketing, content marketing, right? Putting content out there. Early on in a time when VCs were like, why should we put out content? We're the gatekeepers, right? They weren't marketing at all. Turns out now everybody's marketing on Twitter or whatever, but I think it's very important to build up a brand. I, I usually, when I talk about investing uh, in startups anyways, I say there's three things that are very important. I, I don't can't remember if I put this out there before, but the three things, number one is, is really your brand platform, right? Like what, who do people do? You have some sort of unique deal flow because you have this unique platform. So it could be, you know, YC, which is almost like the HBS of Silicon Valley. Uh, or it could, or it could be like, you know, with the platform Andreessen's developed where they have this brand is like they provide all these services to you. They've taken all the fees and they've rolled them into these networks of services that to help you scale your company. Or it could be something like Saster, another investor I really respect, Jason Lemkin. He's built this brand all around being the SaaS guy. Right. Turns out SaaS is uh, hugely overvalued or va- valued by the market right now. So it's a good place to be in, right? The yeah. good right time at the right place at the right time. And so I think building that unique platform to get that proprietary deal flow is very important as an investor. You know, that's one of the kind of core things that you have to do. Yeah. And yeah, my, my goal is I'm interested in investing in and in incubating and that there will be, um, you know, times in my career where I'm doing one more or the other, but really things like what you've done or what Keith Roy has done or what other people have, have done in that vein. Yeah. So it'll definitely help. Absolutely. I think it, it can't hurt. Zooming out a little bit and Anuj, I know you, you've helped Justin on, on the investing stuff. How, how would you describe your, your investing philosophy, your angel investing philosophy? Maybe Justin, you start and Anuj can add on. Oh yeah. Well, I don't necessarily think I'm that good of an investor. <laughs> well, I remember you told me, you told me this at Elmira. You said, invest in your friends. I've lost all money doing it, but if I did it in the beginning, I would have made a lot of money. FOMO yes. investor. Well, yes, I invest in my friends. My friends are investing something and I'll invest just because if I, I don't and they're successful, the FOMO will literally kill me. <laughs> you know, I could have invested in many, many multi-decacorn companies <laughs> if only I didn't listen to my intuition as much and just blindly invested in my friends and not really sure what the lesson is there. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think honestly, I don't think I'm that good of an investor. I think I've been riding this massive bull market. I think most people here in Silicon Valley have been. I don't think they're as genius as we might think either internally or externally. And I think people are very lucky to be in the right place at the right time. I do have some friends who I think are amazing investors. You know, I think Sam Allman, right? For example, I think he's an amazing investor, but I don't find, I don't believe that I have those. Uh... And what makes Sam a great investor? Like 
what uniquely do you think is? Well, I think there's three things that go into being a good investor, right? That number one thing was like having that platform, right? Number two is being actually doing analysis and trying to understand where the world is going to end up and being right about that, right? But I think there's a lot of work that people could do if they wanted, but they don't. And so, you know, that work is like, for example, just a basic one is like when you are confronted with a product and like go start doing customer calls and seeing if the customers actually like it or not. A lot of people don't do that. I don't, you know, I haven't done that as an angel investor very much. So just doing the work to understand, is this where the world's going or not? uh, I think that's a really important thing because usually you're investing in things where you do not, you're not a direct well, not usually maybe, but for myself, I'm investing a lot of things that I don't have like direct industry experience in. And so maybe I don't know what's right, what's going to happen. And the third thing I think is just the willingness to hustle, to chase down deals and make people take your money. Because a lot of these really good investments are made off cycle. Like a lot of VCs and angel investors just like hang their shingle and wait for people to come in and say, oh, I'm raising my series A. And then you are the gatekeeper, you're evaluating or whatever. But I think that the best investors, they identify, hey, I want to invest in this company. I don't care if they're raising money. I'm just going to call this guy every day and be helpful until they take my money. You know, I heard this story, actually. I don't even know where I heard it, but that KOTU got to lead uh, the round in Snapchat at, you know, whatever, $800 million round or whatever. Like the valuation was like $800 million or something like that because (laughs) one of the, the founders like basically flew Evan on his, on his PJ, his private plane somewhere. And, you know, that's a form of hustle. I mean, that's kind of a, it's kind of an extravagant one, but like, you know, just doing whatever it takes to figure out how to get the deal. Um, even if that, that person isn't raising money, that founder's not raising money. I think that's a underweighted, uh, skill set. I want to talk about a few people who've been very influential in your career and ask either something that you think makes them uniquely special or something that you've uniquely taken from them. So maybe we're just talking about Sam. Let's, let's start with Sam. Sam's sort of interesting because he hasn't built a billion dollar company before. And yet is sort of has this exceptional, you know, investing track record and has been this sort of force in Silicon Valley. What do you, what, to what do you credit his superpower to? Cause it's not, it's not sort of immediately obvious the way that it is for other people who've built. Yeah. I think Sam is, has a tremendous well of confidence and a tremendous interest in new ideas. And I think those things kind of combine to make him very curious, pursuing like new companies and investing in new companies, ideas that are so big and so outside the box that, you know, people in Silicon Valley, myself included, were like, huh? But it turns out that they can be amazing companies. You know, he's found some tremendous companies that like he's expanded YC in such ways, like both in terms of companies, but also in terms of initiatives and nonprofits that, you know, we would never have the ambition or even un- like understanding of ideas to like think about, you know, from sourcing things like Ginkgo Bioworks and, and, you know, Rigetti, uh, the, the quantum computing company all the way to, you know, creating open AI. He's just like such a dynamic person who's interested in new ideas to such an extreme level compared up with that level of confidence has been yeah. really incredible to watch. Crazy question. Do you think he or someone else in technology could be president in the next 20 years? Fortunately, I don't think the demographics in the United States support uh, electing somebody from tech. I don't think America wants a technocrat president. I think we got that in Obama and uh, people are dissatisfied. So, you know, unfortunately, this is not a knock against Sam. I just don't think that like that is where we are headed as a country. Yeah. Where do you think YC goes in the future? Does it, is HBS prominent? Does it just continue to expand and, you know, the, accelerators taking a thousand companies or what do you, are there more accelerators? Is there a Princeton to the YC? Cause right now it's really just YC. Like how do you think about, I think, I think YC expands both in breadth and depth. So by breadth, I mean more and more startups. I think the ambition is to fund more and more and more startups concurrently and in different ways. And then I think there's this depth of like funding startups and helping startups throughout the life cycle. And this is coming from the outside. You know, I'm not, um, I'm not there anymore. I'm an LP in the, in the fund a little bit, a small, small one, but, uh, outside of that, I don't, I don't uh, know. So, you know, you have to ask Michael, but you know, I think there, there, I see more and more stuff on the series A program and the continuity program. And yeah, it looks like it might verticalize the whole venture stack. Exactly. Maybe there will be no need for venture investors ever. 
How about Michael? Uh, I was just going to bring him up. What's something that makes him uniquely special or something you've uniquely taken from him? Yeah. So Michael, you know, Michael Seibel, CEO of YC, one of my closest friends, also a board member at Atrium. I think Michael is really the purest person I know in terms of really wanting to help startups and being kind of Mr. Startups. The way I put it is like when we were working together at YC, if all the companies failed after demo day, I, f- I felt like he would not feel that he wasted his time. You know, the process of teaching companies really is, is its own reward for Michael, I think. And he will spend that consequently, he'll spend like hours and hours and hours, you know, he'll camp out at YC the week before demo day and, and be there till 3 a.m. every day to help people prepare, start to prepare for the demo day pitch. You know, he'll make himself available at all hours at any time for startups. And it's one of those things where, you know, when you see a founder with the right market fit, right, the founder market fit, it's like almost like he would pay to do that job. That's the type of passion you really want to see in people. And and I think he really has that. And so he's helped so many startups all the way from back when we were running Justin TV, helping Airbnb, nego- you know, navigate their first couple of years to, you know, more recently being the CEO of YC and then helping these hundreds and hundreds of startups in the same way. I think Michael has that very unique a passion for startups. And that's really a superpower. He also will tell you without pulling punches, but not in a negative way, everything that you're doing wrong, you know, and a lot of people struggle to give that really candid feedback. How about Paul Graham, but not the Paul Graham of 2005 or even 2009, but the Paul Graham of say 2016 on like in the most recent era. I mean, I think that Paul Graham the one, the thing that's been consistent that I really, um, one of the things I really admire is that he, you know, is very principled. Like I think he's an extremely principled person in terms of like, he has these certain beliefs around, you know, startups, for example, but even like, you know, how, how you should, things should run, right. And like how he wants to live his life all, all the way to startups, right. And start in the startups one, I can speak to that a little bit better. You know, he believes in, you know, how to start a startup and like that you need to focus on these few core things, talking to your customers, programming, iterating. And that's really formed the core of YC, right? It, it formed the core philosophy of YC, how, like how you should start a startup. I actually, it's funny because I always believed that there's this one way to start a startup, right? Two guys hacking in a, in a room and talking to customers and then going back and programming something. And it turns out, in my opinion now, that there's many different ways to start companies, right? You can like look at even something like Beats you know, beats audio, right? Like who would have guessed that a rapper and a music producer would start a $3 billion company that they entirely outsource their product for, you know, of like, if you, you told that to the, like, that's completely the opposite of the YC way. Right. But there's many ways to skin a cat is what I've learned. But what I like about PG is that he's always been like, this is my philosophy on it. And this is, I'm like, I've strongly held convictions. And I think that's a very principled thing. Yeah. How about Alexis Ohanian? I think Alexis is a great, you know, I, if people say, uh, if I think my superpower is like kind of the promotional side, I think Alexis is like much next level. You know, he's a 10 X Alexis is, is very good at promoting things. You know, he's always endless, uh, tirelessly. If you follow him on Twitter and Instagram, he's tirelessly promoting other startups, the founders that, that they initialize is invested in. He's um, very good at it, and I think that's pretty amazing um, in a very selfless way. I think um, it's, it's it's amazing. How about Emmett, your co-founder at at Twitch? Emmett is very very deeply analytical, and he's very deeply customer focused. Yeah. Um, and I think that's amazing. Like he is a very customer focused CEO, very product focused CEO, and I think he thinks deeply about product and customers and what customers really really want in a way that. Most people in Silicon Valley don't. The the pivot to Twitch, that's all Emmett, you know, and it was all Emmett talking to customers and really identifying, hey, here are the core things that we gaming broadcasters want. And that company wouldn't exist. You know, the company wouldn't have existed and, and wouldn't have pivoted in that way if it wasn't wasn't for his deep customer insights. Like and so I think he's like really that's his, that's really one of the super you know core superpowers when it comes to work, you know. Totally. what's something you've learned from last one from Mark and Jason? Interestingly, I think that there's a lot of I mean, Mark is like one of the smartest people I've ever met. I think there's a lot of parallels between Andreessen and Atrium, actually. And that's one of the reasons why he was interested in it. What I liked about it was like they set out to rethink the venture firm. And in order to do that, they kind of came up with really one core hypothesis, I would say. And this is from the outside. So you might have to ask him and or maybe Ben. But like their core hypothesis, I believe, was that 
marketing actually matters. Like all of these guys were gatekeepers. They had the money, the, the venture funds, but they didn't like wanted to, you know, they were, they were like kind of, they were gatekeepers and they were like, well, people should find us. You should find like, figure out a connection to us or whatever. And they were just like, marketing actually matters. We're going to market on, you know, social media by they, all the different things they did were forms of marketing, right? So it's everything from like writing blog posts and Ben's book. That's like a direct form of marketing to the way they said it. it's, you know, some experience required, which is what they call like all the GPs are going to be operators to or, or entrepreneurs. That's effectively a form of marketing. Now you could say it's a better strategy for actually advising companies that might be, but the fact they talked about it so much is a form of marketing, right? And then there's like the networks, like here's where we're going to help you with all these services that we've scaled that scales and we approach it like a company, but that's effectively a form of marketing, right? Because it might help the companies, you know, that helps these companies, like the companies tell each other and they tell other companies, you know, I had a founder tell me before I raised money from injuries and he was like, you have to raise money from injuries and their networks are amazing. These uh, scalable services that they have. And so I think that their core hypothesis really was that venture can be a much different business if you actually invest in marketing and that has borne out right now, 10 years later, they just, I think, hit their 10 year anniversary. They are one of the premier firms in, in Silicon Valley that they built very quickly. And I think that, uh, that, that's something that I, I learned, you know, from, from them. And I think that's something that is interesting that applies in many ways to, to Atrium. Totally. I want to end on a few, uh, grab bag questions. Uh, maybe we could start with, you've been in Silicon Valley for how long? We started our first company in 2005 in wow. Boston. Yeah. So almost 15 years. How have you seen it evolve in the time that you've been here? And how do you expect it to evolve going forward? Will it continue to be the center of, of startups worldwide? Will that change? Yeah. Well, let me tell, say that the, the, the network effect is very strong. And I think that Silicon Valley will continue to be the center of startups for a long time to come. That being said, I think the, there's a bunch of things that this specific geographic area is doing like very poorly. You know, you don't need me to tell you, I can read about it online, but you know, everything from housing and infrastructure is very bad here. And so there's a lot of incentive for people to create parts of their companies elsewhere. So, you know, at Alto, we just opened Denver as a back office, right. For um, our HQ two for all of these different uh, functions that are kind of cost prohibitive to put in San Francisco. And you, that's a very common story here in, in, in uh, Silicon Valley. So I think it's, less and less become becoming the obvious trade-off that this is the right, the best place for, for you as a, as a founder. However, I do believe that the network effect is strong enough. That's going to propel it for a long time. I don't think there's going to be a Silicon Valley too. I think it's just that that's just going to be spread around, you know, the rest of the world, all these different companies are going to be spread around the rest of the world or the rest of the United States in terms of how things have changed. The one thing that I think is really has strongly changed is that this industry has grown up and matured a lot and so it has attracted a different profile of people, more people who are interested in developing their career. They're, you know, graduating from school. They want a, a stable career, safe bet. They're coming to Silicon Valley and they're not just working at startups. They're working at Facebook and Google. You know, that's not good or bad, but I do think that when I got here, there were a lot of people who were interested in working in technology because fuck it. It's something cool to do. You know, they were interested in the technology for the technology's sake and they were interested in experimenting with it and. There's a little bit less of that feeling here now, which um, may be something lost. But I do think that there are other places where that that kind of engagement, I guess, or, or attitude manifests itself. You know, I think the crypto markets are one of them, and I think there will be others. Are you long or short distributed teams? I think that we have not yet seen. You know, I talked about this with, with Jason on the this week in starts. We have not yet seen the Decacorn distributed companies. Um, but I think we will. Uh, I think distributed is something that, you know, we're just starting to get the technology to make it work really well, like good video conferencing, Slack, all this stuff is, you know, kind of come up in the last five years. And so now we're going to start seeing the wave of startups that really executed remote really well and have become very successful with it. So we'll, we'll see. But uh, yeah, I think it's coming. Peter Thiel talks a lot about secrets. Uh, what's an important truth that very few people agree with you on? Most people think about starting a company and they get the opportunity to start a company because they really want to solve a specific problem in the world or like bring a specific product or service to market. And they are like the line worker on that. They're either in like sales or engineering or product, and they just are really good at that thing. And the problem most founders have is flipping from that to being more of a manager and delegator, building a machine that builds a machine, right? I actually have the opposite problem. 
which is that uh, we started Atrium. You know, I'd been successful before, had a lot of resources to start. So I actually started by delegating first and kind of building the company without having been like the line worker myself first on like product or engineering or um, sales or obviously like doing the legal work or anything like that. And so uh, I guess my kind of core belief is that you can start a company this way, but I think it, it's like the jury's still out because Atrium's, you know, still a startup. You know, we talked about how to evaluating talent in the context of execs, but I'm curious to talk more in the context of, of founders, especially uh, discovering them before other people have discovered them. Because I've noticed a few times in your career, you've bet on people before other people have bet on them. You've incubated companies with them or you've invested with them and, and played a really close role. What is sort of the criteria or spark that you're looking for that encourages you to spend time with other people who haven't yet been stamped? Yeah, I think there's two things that are really important. Number one is having a growth mindset. So it's people who are always learning. The people I've observed who are like the best, you know, the Brian Chesky's or Drew uh, from Dropbox, these guys are always out there learning whatever's about whatever's going to come down the pipeline and, and, and the next, you know, the next thing around the corner. And I was always impressed by that, um, you know, that dedication because it's hard to like always commit yourself to learning what's next. So growth mindset, I think is really important. And the second thing is just the ability to run through walls and like, you're going to experience a ton of pain and struggle and, and problems when you're a founder. And there's some people who hit those things and they give up other people hit them and they get stronger. And so those people who hit, hit those problems and get stronger, those are the people I want to invest in. What spark did you see in Anuj? Cause a lot of people are out there trying to, to break in and have a role similar to what Anuj has. What did you see in him, Justin? Yeah. So Anuj, what I really liked is that he was very proactive about reaching out and saying, Hey, here's why you should hire me. Here's the type of things I can help you with. And I think that kind of proactivity is really important. And so that's kind of why I started, we started working together. And then after, um, you know, what I've really appreciated is that he's dived into every project with like, I'm just going to figure out how to do this the best and like really figure it out, do research, have a comprehensive understanding, whether it's like, how do we do OKRs or how do you do a team meeting or, you know, any of the kind of daily running a company thing, or even how do, how do I investigate and evaluate angel investments? You know, it's very comprehensive growth mindset. That's been really fun. I think that there's a ton of these types of rules out there. A lot of successful people looking to scale themselves through a, you know, chief of staff or someone to bounce ideas off of a creative partner. They're not that hard to find. Actually, I've had many friends reach out recently where like, how do I find somebody who can, you know, I can partner with in this way. And, um, you know, if you look for them, they're there. Yeah. And to close perhaps. So there are a lot of people, you know, who are listening to this, who are founders who are in the thick of it right now, who are in the grind and can sort of intellectually understand that it will all fade, but have trouble getting there emotionally. What advice or parting words might you, might you leave them with? Yeah. Well, I mean, the actionable advice, you know, I've been meditating 40 minutes a day, every day for a little while now. And I definitely recommend, you know, take some time to disconnect and to introspect, but my actual, you know, the real, I guess my parting words are just, you know, nothing, everything that you think is important doesn't really matter. And that's not, that's not a scary thing. That's not a bad thing. It's not a negative thing. It's, you know, you build up these castles for like in, in your mind about like, these are the things that are really going to create satisfaction for me, whether it's bringing a product to market or having a successful company or executing something successfully or selling your company or whatever it is. And none of those things will ever build any lasting long-term happiness. And even if you accomplish them and you build some great reputation uh, and people listen to you on a podcast, yeah. you know, it's going to fade eventually. And so the sooner you accept that, the happier you'll be. And I wish someone had told me that 10 years ago. Cool. Justin Kahn, uh, co-founder and CEO of Atrium on deck and token daily are very happy customers of Atrium since the beginning. If you're a startup and you're not using Atrium, you need to start using Atrium. Any last plugs for Atrium in terms of what, what startups should be thinking about? Uh, just email us hello at atrium.co or there's, you know, you can fill out the form on the website and we are always uh, on the lookout to help new startups. This has been a great episode. Thank you for what you guys do for the community. And thanks for coming on. Thank you. All right. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 